welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at revolutionary movements in China starting from 1839 going forward to the present. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. Uh, the usual beginning announcements, if you'd like to support the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe, um, share with your friends, uh, especially the rate and review uh, that lets the algorithms know that this is a good podcast. So if you think it is, please go on a rating rampage and let them know. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast, or you can subscribe to the substack, chineserevolutions.substack.com, or you can send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com, and you can let me know what you'd like to see on the substack. Okay. So uh, we're going to set Zhongguofan aside for the moment and go back to the Taiping. We do this podcast by following a book and then dipping into another book, or you know, uh, the book we're following right now is Shifting Focus. The Taiping movement started with influence from foreign ideas, but perhaps what we'll see with the Taiping is uh, what happens when foreign ideas are only partially digested, maybe uh, what happens when the revolutionary movement is unconsciously overtaken by its Chinese-ness, and so it loses its ability to relate with foreign powers. It'll be interesting to look back at this as we go through future re revolutions. Well, future uh, relative to the Taiping. Uh, foreign influence, intervention, and interference will be an ongoing dimension. Like So even today in China, as with any other country, what foreign powers do is a thing. The uh, ability to relate to foreign powers in productive categories will determine how they do or don't benefit from those connections. But ultimately, it's the question of preserving Chinese sovereignty that they'll have to answer. So if the revolution that we look at succeeds that way, then they win. Okay, so the... Uh, the book, of course, that we're following right now is Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, China, the West, and the Epic Story of the Taiping Civil War by Stephen R. Platt. So where we kind of pick up today is summer 1860. Uh, Taiping forces had been trying to get to Shanghai to make agreements with foreign powers, but the foreign Shanghai defenders repelled them with grape shot, like the cannon equivalent of opening up with a machine gun. A cannon-sized shotgun blast. The Taiping had approached Shanghai to take over the Chinese part of it, and you know, the main question is, would the foreigners stay out of the fighting? You know, If they felt threatened, they would use their superior weapons on whoever the Chinese forces were attacking. And you know, who did the foreigners make agreements with to keep their arrangements in Shanghai? So whoever won the Chinese war would determine 
whether they were going to be able to keep their settlements in Shanghai, and if they made a deal with the losing side, maybe that would accelerate them getting shown the door. But so that but when the Taiping went up, they were repulsed by cannon fire, uh, fired by by foreigners, and the the Taiping had to to reckon with this. They thought that maybe there was some way they were connected to the foreigners because they all had kind of sort of this Christianity thing in common. Um, maybe they kind of knew the difference between Catholic and Protestant. Maybe they figured that the people who fired the cannon were French because they're treacherous Catholics and they're pushing for connection with foreign powers with with more of a Protestant bent, like Britain and the United States, because maybe there was some shared faith. You know, but then inside the Taiping hierarchy, whether the Taiping faith was the only true faith is a major question. You know, versus the question of do we have something to learn from the foreigners? You know, and so that's. It's less of a religious question, like when we look at, like, say, Chinese communism today, they can kind of relate to Marx and Lenin and foreign communist parties, but China's going to run its own show. But the Taiping, they, in the end, they're going to go over to, we've got it, and you've got to line up with our version of it. Uh, their disposition toward foreigners could kind of go either way. Like, they could see the advantage in making connections with foreigners, though it's not, though it may not be based on understanding of foreigners, if it's not led by people with experience of foreign cultures, or if the foreigners are working with the Qing, the, the enemy, uh, they're, and if they're otherwise attacking Taiping forces, they reject those forces, because when you get down to it, the Taiping are Chinese, and if China is not the thing that's working, well, they're not going to just become good little subjects of the British Empire, they're not going to just bow to the French they're they're chinese they're going to do they're they're they they want a strong china on you know for for china's sake so when we look at the political situation inside the taiping leadership you know, consider in american politics things going for or against a foreign country can get really complicated so you know, you, we have German Americans, we have uh, Swedish, Norwegian, other Scandinavian Americans, we have uh, Ukrainian Americans. Like so, with the current war going on, they would be a powerful voice for the you know the the side of Ukraine. We have Hispanic Americans who speak up for. 
you know, really the relationship with Mexico and Central America, South America. So, um, and then of course there's the American uh, historical connections to Ireland and Great Britain. So if that's going on, that could make it easier for the American government to move in favor of one country or another. Are U.S. missionaries or aid workers working there such that American society feels responsibility for them? Uh, in right now, um, so for, for the Taiping, they might have some personal relationships with the with British or American uh, religious workers, so that might incline the typing hierarchy to maybe be inclined toward them. Um, foreign policy experts tend not to represent the voting public. So if the you know why to intervene is not made, to politically align with what, you know, hey, you on the street believes it can be very hard to do more than just send money or other aid. Like, like money doesn't hurt if you step on it. If you shoot money, it doesn't uh, cry. Like, it, it, you know, money doesn't die to where, you know, the dollar bill's mother you know, starts making tearful uh, speeches on TV so that we can just send money. You know, con so consider Dr. Anthony Fauci during the pandemic. He's supposed to be a Center for Disease Control expert, the CDC, um, but no one voted for him, so if everyone's going to like him, he's going to have to really work at it to make connection with the public. And if he is even seen, rightly or wrongly, to be maybe doing something wrong, his work really turns into an uphill battle. Okay, so when we flip over to uh, to looking at the Taiping, we're going to have to look again at at Hong Ran Gan, that that really interesting guy. So one of the lessons from a previous look at China foreign diplomacy is that the you really had to have an established basis for ongoing conversation necessary to make complex deals and modify them later. Like so, you had to be able to exchange diplomats, and acknowledge each other's status, that. Official communication was official, that it really meant something, that it would be responded to. And if the two sides can't talk, you can't really get beyond very localized, pragmatic arrangements for trade. Like, so foreign powers would, you know, somebody would sell guns to the Taiping, but the Taiping were, were the rebels. There was nothing official there. So, so we're looking at Hong Ran Gan, um, the cousin of Hong Xuquan, the heavenly king, he's super high in the Taiping hierarchy. He's family of the heavenly king. He has a high formal position. He has good formal qualifications, like he has real experience with foreigners. He has theological education, like in actual Protestant uh, Christianity. 
He speaks English. Uh, he's been a preacher's assistant, again, for Protestant missionaries working in Hong Kong. He is educated in Chinese terms, Confucian classics, formal written Chinese, all that. But his base of power is something other than sharing the critical middle years of the Taiping movement. You know, he was in Hong Kong during the, the hard campaigns on the way up to Nanjing. He missed making a lot of the connections with the current Taiping leadership who had been promoted since then, who had joined the movement. Okay, so when you look at making the connection between domestic American politics and what foreign nations are going to get out of it, you, you, you have experts who understand, but the base of their power isn't necessarily, you know, like their usefulness isn't because they get the people to vote for them. They're, so Hong Ren Gan has all this special knowledge. He has a special connection to arguably the most important person to know in the Taiping hierarchy, but he can't go like he would he really really is going to have to work hard to connect with the other people at the top of the typing movement so so he he's kind of so so he like either there we're going to look at all these different ways he might have wanted to influence the typing all these different things that he might have wanted to teach them, all the things that he wanted them to specifically ask the foreigners for help with. But he doesn't get to do that because, for one thing, the Taiping don't win, the, don't win their revolution. Also, the question of Chinese sovereignty is not solved. Um, so he's, he's one of these interesting cases of somebody who knows things about foreign powers, but he's not in the end going to be successful. So as an aside here, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom has some really interesting details about Hongren Gan's living setup and the different sorts of artifacts he has near him as tokens of his time spent with foreigners in China. And uh, in developing the podcast, I need to pick and choose what I share. This isn't an, you know, an audiobook of that book. So I'll leave that to you to read those bits. But he, he's a really fascinating character. Uh, we're also going to get into talking about the kinds of foreigners who Hong Ren Gan is going to be interacting with, let's keep in mind two general categories of foreigners. On the one side, there's official emissaries and decision makers who are going to decide. They're carrying official messages from people much, much higher than them. They have the power to decide to intervene with military force on one side or the other of the conflict. And then on the other side, there's missionaries or other activists, perhaps eccentrics or otherwise self-motivated, answering to no one. Yeah, they, they are foreigners, uh, but and they, they may carry relevant information back to the British or American or French or whoever else public, 
but they're they're a different class of people. So, like, I kind of fell in the second category when I lived in China. In a sense, I did represent America or American people to some Chinese people. Maybe I contributed in some infinitesimal way to things that the Chinese government has decided. Like I'm one more data point in their in their interactions with Americans coming to China,、uh, working as a as an English teacher, living in Beijing. The the hobbies that foreigners take up,、um, working for state media. Okay, how all that went? I'm one more data point for them. Impressions of China have gotten back to America through me, but no specific deals were communicated through me. I did work for Chinese state media. I did help them communicate. Some of the characters we'll talk about will they they did help the Taiping with some of their work. Um, I did educate my colleagues at Chinese media about American cultural things. Maybe I did influence some of them somehow. I don't know,、um, but I was near the spout of a long pipe. I was carrying out things decided long before, and it was all in English, not in Chinese. So it's not like any article they asked me to write was going to really influence a Chinese audience. Without it being very carefully vetted by whoever is in charge of that, so the foreigners who went to work with the Taiping bring valuable insights into the Taiping movement, their capital in Nanjing, the nature of their beliefs. But what is remarkable to me, as I look at all these things, is that the movers and shakers in Chinese revolutions are going to succeed or fail on their own, for their own purposes. On their own terms, foreigners might bring material that Chinese revolutionaries will use. Foreigners might contribute to the movement. They might play pivotal roles on an individual basis. But the thing in motion in a Chinese revolution is Chinese interests, Chinese needs, Chinese concerns. So, when we look at.、Uh, At the Taiping movement, we're going to be looking at how they succeed or fail to represent Chinese interests, needs, and concerns. At the time of the writing this episode,、uh, we're going into the American holiday of Thanksgiving, so I'm going to cut off this episode here. Thank you for bearing with me. This one was a little bit all over the place. But to sum up, as we push on toward the end of the Taiping Rebellion, we're going to see how. The Taiping brought out certain Chinese needs and concerns that later revolutionary movements will solve, and we're going to see how the Taiping function as a revolutionary movement. They did function as this, and we're also going to see how they ultimately fail to revolution, revolve, turn China over. They don't completely manage it, so they'll they'll kind of be the ones to make it obvious why certain things need to be taken care of that later generations of revolutionaries will take care of. But that's for the next episode. In the next episode, we'll look into some of the foreigners working with the Taiping. Yeah, when I was in China,、uh, just calling non-Chinese foreigners. 
I was a foreigner, British friends, Spanish friends, uh, they're, they're, they're foreigners. That's just what we got used to calling ourselves, being known as. Anyway, thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. Uh, CR is in cheese and roiling. Okay, um, chineserevolutions.substack.com if you'd like to join the substack. Uh, please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com and catch you next time.